Um, I want to begin tonight doing a little bit of review. Uh, we indicated that the doctrine of the church called ecclesiology. Whoops. Everybody got that? Ecclesiology. The doctrine of the church. Uh, now, remember I said that's a broad category. It really covers everything related to the church. The leadership of the church, the mission of the church, the purpose of the church, the metaphors for the church. I mean, everything under the umbrella of the church fits under the category of ecclesiology. And that's one of the subcategories in theology. Theology is the broad category, which is utterances about God. Theos, logia, utterances about God. And then under theology, you have things like soteriology, the doctrine of salvation. Eschatology, the doctrine of end times. Ecclesiology. Uh, the doctrine of the church, pneumatology, the doctrine of the Holy Spirit, so forth and so on. So it's one of the subcategories that, one of the main subcategories in theology. Uh, just by way of review, remember I said that Wayne Gruden said, The church is the community of all true believers of all times. The community of all true believers of all times. Uh, we also said that a distorted, uh, a distorted church and a distorted gospel often go together. John R. W. Stott said the church lies at the very center of the eternal purpose of God. It is not a divine afterthought. It is not an accident of history. Now, what were some of the metaphors of the church that we covered? You remember any of those? Bride of Christ. Bride of Christ. Okay. What else? The body of Christ. God's house. Family of God. Okay, just some of the uh, some of the metaphors, and uh, we take them all together uh, to get a complete, a more complete picture. What did we say the purposes of the church were? We listed out five main purposes. What were those? Fellowship. Say what? Okay. Let's put evangelism and missions. Okay. Discipleship. I heard somebody say instruction. So I'll say discipleship. Let's see. I'm going to get kind of confused here. Um, what? Worship, and one more, ministry. 
In the New Testament, those are the five main categories. Fellowship, evangelism, missions, discipleship, worship, and ministry. We also talked about signs of a true church. Wayne Gruden listed out 12 of them. Mark Dever listed out nine of them. Does anybody remember any of those? Good. Kathy, read those off. Expositional preaching. Uh huh. <laughs> right. Yep. Yes. Okay, very good. Does anybody remember some of the other ones that uh, Wayne Gruden listed? Okay. Okay. Yes. Mm Mm-hmm. Yes. Okay. Mm Mm-hmm. Very good. Very good. So uh, between those two lists, uh, we have an understanding of the signs of the church. Now, what did we say the attributes of the church were? Holy. Holy. Okay. One. And one other. Okay, that would go with the one. Apostolic. We do not believe in apostolic succession, but we do believe in uh, the apostolic message. Uh, Our message today ought to be the same as the message of the apostles. The gospel doesn't change, okay? Then we also talked about in the church, we're not free to believe anything we want to believe. We have God's Word. God's Word is inerrant. That means without error. Without error in the original autographs. Uh, God's Word is inerrant, infallible. Means it's not even able to err or lead us astray. Uh, So the Word of God is truthful in all that it says. It's not a science textbook, but when it comments on science, it's been shown time and again to be accurate. It's not a history book in and of itself. But when it comments on, on history, it's been shown to give accurate statements. Um, And the Word of God is what directs our ministry. Uh, Whatever we do is to be word-centered. 
Uh, we said that uh, Lig and Duncan said we're to do certain things with the word. Do you remember what the certain things with the word that we're to do that are to make up a worship service? Read the word. Sing the word. Pray the word. Preach the word. See the word. The, uh, the ordinances. Yes. So sing the word, pray the word, read the word, preach the word, and see the word. Okay? So again, the word is to direct uh, everything that we do. We started looking two weeks ago at the gifts. Uh, the gifts that he gives in Ephesians 4, we saw that he gave apostles and prophets. Those were for a certain period of time. And it was through the prophets and apostles that, that God gave his word to us. And then there's the office of the evangelist. It's, it's not to replace the fact that we are all to be witnesses, which indeed we are. We're all to be witnesses. But there is a special gift of the evangelist given to the church and then also the pastor-teacher. Okay? And the purpose in Ephesians 4 of giving these gifts, the, the prophets, the apostles, the evangelists, the pastors, teachers, is what? To equip the body for works of service and so that we will be built up and mature and not tossed to and fro by every wind of doctrine. Then we went on looking at Romans 8 and 1 Corinthians 12 uh, to look at other gifts and we saw things there like the teacher. There's a, there's a gift of teaching other than pastor-teacher. There's the gift of leadership, the gift of administration, the gift of giving, the gift of service or helps, the gift of mercy, the gift of exhortation, uh, the gift of wisdom or knowledge. So all of those gifts that we talked about. And related to the gifts, remember what I said, that no one is to downplay their gift or anybody else's gift. We're not to think too highly of ourselves, but at the same time, we're not to think too lowly of ourselves. We're not to downplay our gift or the gifts of others. As Paul says uh, in 1 Corinthians 12 to 14, uh, some of the gifts that we deem less important, they're less visible the body needs even more. Some of those behind-the-scenes gifts that attention is never called to them. And yet the body cannot function without those. Uh, and then last week we began looking at the mission of the church, the Great Commission. Uh, Jesus talking about all authority in heaven and on earth being given to him. And he told us to go therefore and make disciples baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that He's commanded us. And lo, I'm with you always, He said, even to the end of the age. In the Great Commission, evangelism is assumed in that. If you're going to baptize people, it's assumed that you want them to the Lord. And then you go on to teach them. The Great Commission doesn't stop with conversion. We don't just witness to people, get them on to the Lord and drop them by the wayside. We are to disciple them. 
And we have the promise of the Lord that is we're about His business. He's with us. Well, tonight I want us to talk about the power or energy of the church. And what would that be? Related to that, what is the one thing that so oftentimes gets forgotten in too many churches? I heard it. Prayer. Jesus said, My Father's house is to be a house of prayer. Someone wisely said that the church marches forward on her knees. Someone else said before we go out to men, we need to first go in unto God. Prayer. Uh, So oftentimes, sadly, it's forgotten in many places. Uh, I want you to turn to Acts with me for a moment, the book of Acts. And I'm just going to highlight some things, uh, painting with a broad brush. We're not going to go in depth on any of these Acts passages tonight. We're going to spend more time in Matthew But uh, in the book of Acts, I I just want you to see something, okay? In Acts chapter 1, what do they begin doing in verse 12? What is it that they begin doing in verse 12? I'm sorry? Okay. Praying together in the upper room. And what was the purpose of what they were doing there? Okay. And again, what was, what was the business at hand? Finding... Finding God's choice to replace Judas. Okay? What did they do? They went way ahead of God because he already had that figured out when you get to chapter 9. <laughs> yes. They, uh, they replaced him with a guy named, yes. Uh, so, finding God's replacement, finding a new apostle, they went to God in prayer. Okay? Now, how about in chapter 2, what do we find them doing? Actually, we find there's... there's Two different scenarios in chapter 2. 
uh, related to prayer. The first one is they are waiting on the coming of the Holy Spirit. We're told they're, they're waiting in prayer. And then in Acts 2.42, we see that prayer characterized their daily meetings. Acts Acts uh, two forty two, okay. Then we come over to Acts chapter four, and what do we see going on there? We see them responding to. Persecution. And what did they do? How did they respond to persecution? They went before God and they prayed about it. They prayed about it. And we're told at the conclusion of that prayer in verse 31 and 32 of chapter 4 that the place was shaken where they were assembled together. Uh, But you read the verses preceding uh, verse 31 and you find out that they are taking the concern to God. Remember what had happened in chapter 3. Peter and John had gone up to the temple for one of the times of prayer. And as a result of that, they were arrested. When they were released, they went back to the church. They reported what the authorities said. And the church immediately gathered together and they started praying about the persecution that they were encountering. Okay? So they, they, uh, they responded in prayer. Then you come over to Acts chapter 6. And what are they doing in chapter 6? They are choosing deacons. A passage that is believed uh, to, to be the, uh, the foundational passage of the office of deacon. So they're choosing deacons. Okay? And then if we were to go on to Acts chapter 13, and Acts 13 to Acts 28 is going to be the mission as they are taking the gospel to the uttermost ends of the world the book of Acts started in Jerusalem and then they were witnesses in Samaria well start in Jerusalem then Judea following Acts 1-8 they were witnesses in Jerusalem Judea then Samaria remember the the revival going on in Samaria Acts chapter uh, 8 And then beginning in chapter 13, you see the missionary endeavor taking the gospel to the uttermost ends of the world at that time. And the Lord saying, separate unto me Paul and Barnabas 
to the work that I've called them. So we could say the mission enterprise. So what I want you to see is in, in, in all of the major divisions, this is a large, granted, this is a large division down here from 13 to 28. But in all the major divisions of the book of Acts, what, what do we see the church relying on throughout? Prayer. Prayer. Sometimes you'll hear people say today, you know what, what we need to do is be more like the early church. And indeed we do. But what we see about the early church is through every phase of their ministry, all of their challenges, all of their mission work, all of the response that they encountered at the hands of the world, through it all, whatever major decision they were making, it was bathed in prayer. And folks, think about it. The early church had nothing that we have today in terms of technology. I mean, think of what all we have today in terms of technology. Think of what we have today in terms of transportation. And yet the early church seems like it was more capable of impacting its world back then for Christ than we are today. You think this has something to do with it? I think so. I think so. Now, sometimes people will ask me, and I did a Wednesday night series on what I'm about to suggest. I'm not going to do that again tonight. But sometimes I'm asked, but pastor, how exactly should we be praying? Let me encourage you, uh, the epistles in the New Testament that begin with the book of Romans, in all of the letters and epistles in the New Testament, you will find prayers, usually near the beginning of Paul's, after he greets the church that he's writing to. Uh, he will say, I am praying for you. And he will list out what he is praying for. Now in the book of Ephesians, you find it not only in Ephesians 1, but you find it also in Ephesians 3. So you find two different places in the book of Ephesians. But always in his letters, you will find, again, usually in chapter 1 of each of his letters, you will find his intercessory prayer for that church. I would challenge you to get a notebook and read through each of those letters. When you come to the prayer right after the salutation, when you come to the prayer, just start writing down what the Apostle Paul said he was praying for. Okay? Write down specifically. 
And then what you're going to find is you're, you're going to have some bullet points that are going to enrich you in your own intercessory prayer. Because oftentimes in the modern church, it is said that our prayers, especially our prayer meetings, are more like an organ recital. Lord, touch his heart. Touch her kidneys. Heal his liver. <laughs> An organ recital. And you, you listen to a prayer meeting in the average church, and what you will hear is an organ recital. Now, does that mean we shouldn't pray for those things? No, I'm not suggesting that at all. Because we should pray for those things. But what I am saying is when you read the prayers of the Apostle Paul for each one of these churches that he wrote to, and you write down what it was he was praying for them, it's, it's going to show you and me how much richer and fuller and complete our prayers should be. We ought to be doing more than just praying for the physical that's part of it, but we ought to be doing more than that. Now, in talking about prayer, like I say, don't, don't have time to go over all of those petitions. But what I do want to go over briefly with you tonight when we talk about prayer is what Jesus had to say about it. Okay? Find Matthew chapter 6. We're going to look at the Lord's Prayer and see what we can learn about our prayer life by looking at the Lord's Prayer. Now, technically, this should not be called the Lord's Prayer probably. The Lord's Prayer is John 17. John 17 is the Lord's Prayer. What is John 17? John 17 is Jesus' intercessory prayer for his disciples. Okay? Really what Matthew 6 should probably be called is the disciples' prayer because he's teaching the disciples how they need to start praying. Now, do you remember? Uh, do you remember what is what scholars will call the the sits in Laban? You know what that is? The sits in Laban. It's a German phrase that means the original life setting of a passage, the original the circumstance, the original life setting. That called forth that teaching. What was the sits in Laban of the disciples' prayer? After the Sermon on the Mount? But what was it in particular that had really gotten their attention? No. They had seen Jesus' prayer life. 
The disciples had seen Jesus' prayer life. And they were deeply impressed by that. And they said, Lord, teach us to pray the way you pray. And so Jesus in Matthew 6 began doing that. Now, folks, the Bible tells us, let, just listen real close before we get into the Lord's Prayer. I will still refer to it as the Lord's Prayer because it's what's come down through church history. I doubt we'll change that tonight to the disciples' prayer. But listen to what John says in 1 John 5. This is the confidence that we have toward him that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the request that we've asked of him. You hear what the scripture is saying there? The scripture is saying that you and I can have confidence when we pray. But if we want confidence when we pray, what's got to be in place? We've got to be praying according to God's will. We have no assurance of confidence in our prayers. We have no assurance of answered prayer if we are praying unbiblically. James said, you have not because you ask not. When you do ask, you ask amiss that you might consume things on your own lust. If we're praying selfishly or according to our own lust, according to our own greeds and desires, we have no promise whatsoever that we're going to have answered petitions. But the Bible says if we're praying according to God's will, we have the confidence that our prayers will be heard and answered. Well, notice what Jesus said, first of all, beginning in verse 5. He said in verse 5, And when you pray, do not be like the hypocrites, for they love to pray standing in the synagogues and on the street corners to be seen by men. I tell you the truth, they have received their reward in full. But when you pray, go into your room, close the door, and pray to your Father who is unseen. Then your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. So how are we not to pray? We are not to pray with wrong motives. And what would a wrong motive be? To be seen. The Jews had their three times of prayer throughout the course of the day. And some of the Pharisees and the religious leaders would schedule their travel into town, into Jerusalem... So that they would arrive at a busy street corner or at the marketplace at the beginning of a time of prayer. Because what people would do is they would stop at a time of prayer and they would go into a prayer time. And the religious leaders would plan their journeys into town. So they'd be getting into town at a busy marketplace or street corner at the beginning of one of those times of prayer. Why'd they do that? To be seen by men. So when they stopped and started praying, everybody would look over at them and say, Oh, look at Brother Joe. Isn't he godly? No, he's not being godly at all. 
He's doing what he's doing for show. Now, is there a reward in that? Did Jesus say there's a reward in somebody doing that? There's a reward. They wanted recognition from men. Some men would look at them and maybe be complimentary of their devotion, how godly they were, how devoted they were, because look at them. They're stopping. They're not being too busy to neglect the time of prayer. They're praying. They would get that kind of recognition from some people. They'd get a pat on the back from some people. So Jesus said there would be a reward in it. Some men would reward them. But Jesus said, that's as far as the reward goes. They're not getting a reward from God. They weren't doing what they were doing to talk to God in the first place. They were doing what they were doing so they could be seen as praying. They were doing it for show. And so they would get their reward from some men from that. But that's, that's all. That's all they would get. Uh, another way that we're not pray, uh, Jesus said, vain repetition. Verse 7, when you pray, do not keep on babbling like the pagans because they, will be, they think they'll be heard because of their many words. Now, what's he talking about there? Is he talking about that it is wrong if you and I have something heavy on our heart and every day we're, let's say you have a kid that's going through a trial or you're praying for your kid's salvation. And I mean every day you're just praying over and over and over again for that child. You have a spouse battling cancer And every day you're praying for that spouse to be healed. In fact, you might be praying multiple times throughout the day. Is that what Jesus is forbidding? No. Uh, Even the word that he uses here, the bata logeo, the pagan Greeks thought that as they were pay, praying to their deities, they thought that they had to dial up a magic combination of words. And if, if my gods, if my deities are not answering my prayer, I've not hit on the right combination yet. This was some of the pagan Greeks in the first century. Um, And so they would keep babbling on and on and on, maybe saying incantations or certain words or phrases over and over and over again. And because they were, again, they were thinking they had to dial up just the right combo. And if they could find that right combo to dial up, then their prayer would be heard and answered. And Jesus is saying, That's not the nature and character of our God. Your Father loves you. He knows what you need before you even ask Him. See, the Greek deities were, they were, they viewed their gods as being up in the heavens ready to strike you dead anyway. 
They weren't for you. They were ready to kill you. And Jesus is saying, the true and the living God, our Heavenly Father, is not like these Greek deities. He loves you, and He knows what you need. And so you don't have to think that you've got to dial up some kind of combination of words to get his attention. Uh, we know Jesus prayed three times in the garden. What did he pray? If it be your will, let this cup pass from me. Jesus himself told us to pray, ask and keep on asking, seek and keep on seeking, and knock and keep on knocking. So again, repetitious prayer is not what's being forbidden here. But praying, thinking you've got to dial up the right combination of words. That's what Jesus is saying you and I don't need to think that we've got to do. So, how then are we supposed to be praying? How then are we supposed to be praying? Well, what are the... There are two halves if you'll keep both of these halves in mind I think it will help guide you in your daily prayer life because so oftentimes in our prayer life what are we only thinking of we're thinking of what I want today God I need this I need this Keep me safe going to work. When I get to work, give me wisdom to, to do my job. Lord, I need this, I need this. We're only thinking of our needs. But what's Jesus saying the two halves of the Lord's Prayer? What's, what's the two broad divisions there? What's first? For lack of a better way of putting it, I'll say God's concerns and man's concerns. Okay? What's first? That God's name would be hallowed. To hallow God's name means to set Him apart from everything that is common and profane. We are to esteem Him and prize Him and honor Him and adore Him above all. He's not the man upstairs. He's sovereign God. Remember what Isaiah learned about Him in Isaiah chapter 6? Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. We live in a day and age where the name of God is used in such a light and a flippant way. We hear people using God's name in vain. But folks, cursing is not the only way to use God's name in vain. Anytime you use God's name flippantly, That's using God's name in vain. 
God's name, we are to pray that God's name would be high and exalted and esteemed among men. And, and Jesus is saying when we go to God in prayer, th- that ought to be our, our top concern first and foremost. That God's name would be esteemed and held as holy. And praying for things where the name of God will be esteemed. And then after that, he says pray for God's kingdom to come. What is God's kingdom? The rule and the reign of God. Now, when we pray for God's kingdom to come, if we're praying with integrity, we also need to be working for God's kingdom, right? If you're satisfied to have closets in your heart where Jesus is not welcome, then you need to think about this petition. You cannot pray this prayer with integrity if you're not concerned about lost souls and people going to hell. If you don't care about serving the Lord, through the local church the way the Bible tells us to you can't be praying that prayer with integrity so God's name and then God's kingdom Rick did you have something you wanted to say? Yes. And I've heard, I don't know how many non believers pray this prayer. Right. And, you know, Jesus and having a relationship with him is what gives us the access. Amen. And so, to me, even though that's not really emphasized, still very important. Yeah, it sure is. Yeah, very important. God's concerns are often put on a back burner in our life, aren't they? Folks, when we're praying, when we're going before God daily in our praying, what we find in God's Word that He is focused on ought to be very much a concern of us. So oftentimes when we go before God in our daily prayers, we're, we're not even thinking about the things He's taught us in here. So, you know, if, praying for His kingdom, we ought to be praying for, for His churches to prosper. Uh, for, for Christians to be about their Father's business. Uh, I mean, that category is so broad. Right? What's next? God's will. Now, we know that God's will 
is always done in the final analysis. What I mean by that is one of these days, all the kingdoms of this world are going to be the kingdom of our Lord and of His Christ. Okay? So in, the, in that larger scope, His will is, is always done. But so oftentimes in our individual lives, His will is not done. Sometimes in our churches, His will is not done. We can grieve the Holy Spirit. So anyway, when you, when you think about your prayer life, you ought to stop and ask yourself, in my daily prayer life, God's name, God's kingdom, God's will. Do things like that factor into my prayer life? Am I just in a hurry to talk about what I want that day? Or am I focused first on God's majesty and His purposes in the world? That ought to be a priority. Now, does all of that mean that we don't get around to this? No, because Jesus covers this next. He talks about man's needs. And what's first among those needs? What's he say? Give us this day our daily bread. This petition is widely believed it can cover all of our physical needs. Martin Luther commented that this this petition for God to provide our daily bread could likewise encompass a healthy body, good weather, a safe home, a family, as well as food. Anything pertaining to your physical needs could fall under this first petition for daily bread. I think it's absurd what church leader Jerome said many years ago of this petition. He indicated that this part of this petition was simply a request for there to be a good supply of bread for the church on the Lord's Day to be able to celebrate communion together. That's what Jerome said of this petition. No. I think Luther was right. Whatever your physical concerns are could could fit under this. Uh, Elmer Town says here, When we pray, give us this day our daily bread, we're asking for more than bread, although the petition includes our daily food. Bread is a simple word that stands for all of our physical needs. Bread gives us strength to walk, work, dig, or type at the word processor. Bread gives us stamina that drives us to close a business deal. Bread gives the teacher energy to handle restless children. Bread stands for the roof over our heads, the clothes on our backs. It stands for the car to give us basic transportation or subway money to get us to work. Bread stands for fuel oil in the winter, for air conditioning in the summer, for physical healing so we can work. I think that's a good word. 
And so the first petition under man's concerns is that, that God would take care of everything related to this body. After all, God gave us a body. Sure, we have a soul and spirit, but God gave us a body. So, God's concerned about our body. Now, folks, when we, when we see this first petition about our daily bread, we need to understand the difference between our audience and Jesus' audience, don't we? Because what do we live in today? Christian Disneyland. We live in a a world of abundance compared to the first century world. In the first century world and in many places still today in the world, they live a hand-to-mouth existence. The day laborers in Jesus' day would work in their fields all day. At the end of the day, the landowner would give them their wages. Uh, they'd go home and at the marketplace, they'd be able to stop and buy the food for that day. Or, or for the next day. And each day, they, that's how they lived. It was a hand-to-mouth existence, literally. Much different than our world today. But folks, I don't care even if your pantries are full and your closets are full of warm clothes and your gas tank is full of gasoline uh, or diesel fuel, you need to remember where your provision comes from. What's the Bible say? Every good and perfect gift comes down from above. God gave it to you. Somebody, some, some unbelieving man says, huh, I worked for it. Well, who gave him a strong body to be able to work? Who gave him a sound mind to be able to work? If you got a strong body and a sound mind to be able to work, God gave you that. So everything, everything comes from him. Well, what's, what's the next thing? If, if uh, daily bread, what did Jesus say next? Forgiveness. If this one addressed our physical needs, this one certainly addresses our spiritual needs. Man's man's not simply a physical being. He's also a spiritual being. And right at the top of that list of spiritual needs is the need to be forgiven. Folks, we have a debt we cannot pay. It is not even within our ability to be able to pay our debt that we owe to God. 
but Christ has paid it. 2 Corinthians 5.21, the scripture says, He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf that we might become the righteousness of God in him. We need forgiveness. Even after becoming a Christian, do you still need forgiveness? You better believe it. You need daily forgiveness, right? You know, one thing people don't think of much today is, and I think it comes from the fact that we compare ourselves to one another so much. Somebody says, I'm a good person, but another person is not your standard. Jesus is your standard. And up next to Jesus, all of us ought to be like Isaiah who said, woe is me, I am undone. Up next to Christ, we all sin and come short of the glory of God. And sin is not just wrongdoing. It's not just the sins of commission. It's also the sins of omission. Not doing what we should have done. This day, today, have you done everything today by a 100% perfect standard exactly the way Jesus would have had you do everything. Have you done everything today perfectly how he would do it? No, you've not. So you and I stand in need of forgiveness. Uh, Notice what he says here too. He says, forgive us our debts at how? As we forgive our debtors. The New Testament teaches us if we have been truly saved and forgiven. Then our heart, if we've experienced the grace and the mercy of God. Then our heart is going to be, should be to extend grace and mercy and forgiveness to other people. Because we've experienced that from God. Jesus told a parable in Matthew 18 about that. A servant who owed a debt, a huge debt. And today's money, uh, it would be like owing his master $20 million. He could have never paid the debt. And he was called in to give accounting for it. He cast himself on the mercy uh, of his boss or his king in that parable. And he was forgiven. But he went out and he found a guy who owed him $20. Again, that's, that's the monetary difference. He's been forgiven 20, 20 million. Forgiven. He finds a fellow servant he owes $20 to. And in the Greek text, the word is literally he throttles him. He grabs him around the neck. And it, it, was a, it was a physical hold. You'd get on somebody, the clothing around their neck, and, their neck, and you would twist it and you would choke them to throttle somebody. And that servant uses the very same words that this guy has just used against his king. This servant who only owes him $20 
pleads for him. Same words. And he is unwilling to forgive him. And what's Jesus' point at the end of that, at the end of that teaching? That he showed that he really didn't have the heart of the king who forgave him. So he was cast into outer darkness. Those who have been forgiven must forgive. If you can't forgive, it's probably an indication you're not really a believer to begin with. Um, Okay, what's the next one? Divine protection. Divine protection. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Now, Here's a red flag. Does God lead us into temptation? No. James 1.13 says so. The word tempt here can also mean trial. It's a neutral word. Context determines if it's meant in a negative sense of temptation or the positive sense of trials. Likewise, does it mean that we should never want God to to test us, to lead us into a trial to strengthen us? It doesn't mean that either. Rather, what this is a petition for is, Lord, do not allow me to step into a situation today that you know at this point in my life today I will not be able to handle. And the evil one would get a victory over me today. God knows what we're capable of and what we're not capable of. Um, And so we're asking for His protection that we would not get in over our heads to where the evil one would have a foothold in our life. We're to trust God that He will only give us what we can handle. And he will not allow more. Now, again, when we look at this prayer, we see what Jesus is teaching his disciples. Just some broad category. Is he covering everything in this? No. But he's giving us some categories to think of. I think one thing, as I mentioned at the outset, so we won't just get stuck down here all the time. So that we'll also in our daily prayers be thinking of what's God's concerns for me to be praying about today. Okay, now likewise let me say that this is not a prayer that Jesus taught his disciples so that we would merely recite it every day or every week in in church service. Some churches do that. Uh, Is there anything wrong necessarily in doing that? No, unless it becomes vain repetition. But if Jesus Jesus meant us to simply recite the Lord's Prayer and that's all, then it's interesting that when you come to the book of Acts and you come to the epistles and letters written to churches in the rest of the New Testament, 
you never find an example of a church reciting this. If it was given to be recited, you would think somewhere along the lines, especially when you get into some of the letters talking about public worship. Paul spoke of, of patterns of public worship in 1 Corinthians. He spoke of patterns of public worship in 1 Timothy. You would especially think in passages like that that are talking about public worship. If this is something that Jesus taught his disciples so that they would just recite it, you would expect it to show up elsewhere in the New Testament. And it never does. That ought to be a hint for us too, that Jesus wasn't teaching this prayer just simply so we would recite it. Again, he's teaching. His disciples were hungry to know how to pray. They'd seen him pray, and they wanted to pray like he did. And so he's giving them a pattern to use in their own prayer life. So as, as we think about praying, and, and praying being the energy and the power of our daily lives as individual Christians, and also prayer being our strength and energy in the church weekly as we meet. We're giving patterns here of things that we ought to be mindful of. So you ought to think about your own prayer life. When, when you see these two halves to the Lord's Prayer, God's concerns and man's concerns, when you evaluate your own prayer life, how are you doing? Are you covering all those different bases? Or would you have to confess, God, I have focused on my physical needs, the physical needs of my loved ones, and nothing else. God, forgive me. Because I need to start focusing on your concerns along with these other concerns of mine too. So evaluate your own prayer life in light of the Lord's Prayer. And then like I said too, go through Paul's letters in particular. In each one of them, right after the salutation, he will have specific intercessory prayer items that he gives for that church. Make a note of those. And if you'll put all these things together, write them down in a journal or something, and, and have before you as you pray, it's going to help you immensely in your own prayer life. So that your own prayer life is not unbalanced. So that it's not unbalanced or it's not selfish. You're, you're going to see a, the, the big picture in the New Testament of how as a disciple of Christ we ought to be praying. Prayer is the power and energy for the church. We dare not think, we shouldn't think, 
I know we do too often in the modern church. We think of our budgets, our technology, the things that we have, even our techniques. And we trust in these things to be our power and energy in ministry. And we miss it. Yes, God gives us these good things to enjoy. But as we learn how to pray, what do we discover? We find out that He is our greatest resource of all. Any questions or comments before we close? Ronnie, were you raising your hand? Oh, okay. Through the Son. Pray to the Father in the name of Jesus and the power of the Spirit. That's a good pattern. Yes. Yes. It's never, <clears throat> never, never mentioned in the book of Acts. Never mentioned in any of the epistles. And, and again, that's, that, you've hit it right. It's, it's a pattern of, of the different things we ought to be thinking of in our prayer lives. So we won't just get stuck in a rut of praying just for one thing. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's good. Listen to prayers in church. Um, Because you will you will hear man's concerns mainly. When's the last time you've been to a prayer meeting and the focus of the prayer meeting was people praying that in that church family that they would bear the fruit of the Spirit? That people would grow in maturity? That people would, uh, the, the indwelling word would be a part of their lives? That somebody would be saved? That the mission endeavor of the church would be strengthened. Um, that a church planter that might be in our budget 
that there would be the doors open for him to lead souls to Christ or strengthen him in his disciple making. You generally don't hear that. Again, what do you hear? The organ recital. Lord, touch hearts, touch kidneys, touch livers. And again, I'm not saying don't pray for those physical things. I'm just saying we are very unbalanced in our praying. And, and the Lord's Prayer helps to keep us in balance.